This is the KPMG Investment Management Perspectives Podcast. And this episode is about how the SEC modernized regulatory framework for fund valuation impacts boards. Hi, I'm Matt Giordano, Deputy Practice Leader for KPMG's Public Investment Management Practice and a partner in our Boston office. After more than 50 years, the SEC has adopted a new valuation framework rule. Joining me today to discuss the new rule and the impact it may have to the investment company boards and their advisors is Dave Grimm, a partner at Stradley Ronan. Dave's also the former director of the SEC's Division of Investment Management, so I think we're all really excited to hear Dave's perspectives. And for those of you who don't know this, Dave and I had the pleasure of working together for a number of years on the SEC staff, so this is really going to be a fun and insightful podcast. Um, And, you know, Dave, let's just get right into the heart of the rule. The last time the commission published the guidance around valuation was really the old ASRs, ASR 113 and 118 from 1969 and 1970. So like I had mentioned, this is 50 years in the making. There's been significant changes to investments. You you have derivatives now um, to, to valuation in general, to the way that boards can conduct their business and the way that advisors look at valuation. So at a high level, what are the top three items in the valuation rule that boards and management really need to focus on? Thanks, Matt, and great to see you. Great to be here with you today. Um, thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, you know, I was thinking about today, why should you listen to us? Well, the release that was 50 years in the making, as Matt was saying, is over 200 pages long. And there's a lot of stuff in there. So. What Matt and I are going to try to do is boil down the top few things that you need to know about it um, into the next, you know, 10, 15 minutes or whatever. So hopefully that'll be really helpful to you as you as you try to digest this rule. So as I think about the big three categories of information that we want to talk about today, one is let's talk about the boards, right? And in the board bucket of issues, um, we're going to spend a little bit of time on liability, and then we're going to spend a little bit of time on what the board's going to have to do in the boardroom every day uh, to oversee valuation under the new rule. Secondly, issues for fund advisors. You know, what's up under the new rule for them? Well, again, I think we'll follow a similar format. We'll start with a little bit on liability, and then we'll also spend some minutes on just describing what these obligations look like under the new rule and what it's going to mean in practice for you. Um, And then finally, and Matt, I'm looking forward to hearing your perspective on this. There's all kinds of auditing and accounting changes uh, in the over 200 pages and lots, lots, lots of goodies there for us to unpack. So looking forward to that piece, that set of issues as well. Yeah, we'll we'll certainly make sure we hit on the accounting and auditing changes, which is uh, my favorite subject. But before we get into that, Dave, let's just let's just hit on board liability uh, high level. What's top of mind when it comes to board liability in this new rule? So, Matt, when it comes to liability um, and when I'm talking to directors about liability, I often start with uh, (laughs) the truth. Right. Valuation is really hard. And. One of the tricks with valuation is that it's very easy after the fact to look back with 2020 hindsight and criticize people for not getting it right. When in reality, you know, at a particular time, it can be really hard to figure out what the right valuation was. So there were a lot of comments on the SEC's proposal to try to get a recognition of that point. 
one of the biggest comments in the liability area was, please, SEC, turn the rule into a safe harbor. Why did people make those comments? Well, what a safe harbor does is it recognizes that even though there's this rule that's on the books, there may be other ways to get to the same result that are just fine. That's why people wanted this rule turned into a safe harbor. The SEC, on the other hand, had a goal in mind, which they characterized as trying to establish minimum consistent standards. And in their view, the concept of a safe harbor didn't line up with minimum consistent standards. So they chose not to adopt the safe harbor approach that a lot of people asked them to do. The second bucket of issues under liability for boards that I have been focused on involve the business judgment rule. For any of the directors who are listening out there, this is one you hear about all the time, right? It's a, it's a, it's a legal concept. And basically it means that the courts will show deference to your decisions when you have a thorough process in making your decisions. Um, and there were comments to the SEC on this rule that said, hey, SEC, in the recent derivatives rule, in the recent liquidity rule, uh, you made reference to the business judgment rule as part of the obligations with boards. And the request was, please do so in valuation as well. Unfortunately, the SEC didn't do that. They decided that valuation had a little bit different context and, and, and they didn't take the same approach as they did in valuation and or sorry, in uh, liquidity and derivatives. I will say that on, on the um, liability front, they, SEC did make some improvements in, from the proposal. Um, one of the things that they did is many of the commenters pointed out that what happens if there's a technical violation, like somebody forgets to keep a particular record that's required by the rule. But even with that record keeping problem, the valuations are perfectly accurate, but that shouldn't result in a valuation violation for either the board or the advisor. The SEC heard those comments loud and clear and actually included some wording in the release to reflect just that point. And in fact, what they did was they took the record keeping provision that had been in the rule, they took it out of the valuation rule and they put it into a separate record keeping rule. So uh, I think a lot of people in the industry will be happy about that clarification. Yeah, Dave, that's certainly a pro when you think about some of the changes that, that have been made. Um, so what does this mean for the job of the board in the boardroom? Yeah, that's, that's a great question, Matt. And I think a lot of people are going to try to figure that out over the next 18 months. But I think what I would say is the following. First of all, the statute, the Investment Company Act, still requires boards to determine fair value. What this rule adds to that determination responsibility is the ability to designate. So boards can now designate to other people to help them make those determinations. Now the issue surrounding designation, or one of the issues surrounding designation in the new rule I should say, is that there were a lot of comments to the SEC that said, there are a lot of different people who help boards with valuation who can we designate to? We'd like to be able to designate to a number of them, right? The advisor, a sub-advisor, a pricing service. The SEC 
um, in the adopting release decided that there's only one party that can be designated to by the board, and that's the advisor. Sub-advisors cannot be designated to. Pricing services cannot be designated to. Dave, and is that because of the statute? Is that what kind of pulled them them back? Because what I had thought is when you look at the advisor and the sub-advisor, um, I actually thought that that may expand, and we saw that contract. And, and what was the cause of that? What were the comments that, that caused that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question. And I think the way the release explains it, it's a little bit different depending on whether you're talking about the sub-advisor or another service provider. But for a sub-advisor, um, there, there were different kinds of comments that the SEC received, and some of them made the point that trying to involve the sub-advisor in, in the designation process would be confusing, duplicative, it would be hard to figure out different roles, and that it was better if it was more clear to just designate it to the advisor. Um, so that's why the SEC went that way on sub-advisor. When it came to pricing services or administrators or other service providers, basically what the SEC said is to be the designee, they think that it should be someone that is subject to a fiduciary duty to the fund. And of course, it's only the advisor that is subject to that duty. So that's why they chose not to um, permit designation to these other service providers. Now, one thing that the release does is even though um, you can't, the board can't formally designate to these other parties, there is some guidance in there about how they can rely on them to help with the process, even if they can't formally designate under the rule. So hopefully that will help people figure out how to keep those important parties who are currently involved in the valuation mix going forward. The other pieces of board responsibility going forward that I would highlight for people are policies and procedures and reporting. Those are the other two big buckets, right? So on policies and procedures, you know, all the fund clients that we work with have existing valuation policies and procedures. There are some specific concepts in this new rule that I think everyone's going to have to take a, a fresh look at and figure out how, if at all, those impact existing policies and procedures. And in all likelihood, a new version of those policies and procedures is going to come to the boards for their consideration and potential approval. On the reporting front, um, there's a whole host of requirements in the rule. In some ways, moving from proposal to adoption, the SEC made those reporting requirements more flexible, but there's still a number of them that people are going to have to get up to speed on. So I think of it as kind of having three buckets of reporting. There's quarterly reporting, annual reporting, and then prompt reporting. So quarterly um, basically what you're going to have to do quarterly is the manager or whoever you're designating to it, it, you know, it's the advisor as we just went through, is going to have to report anything material that has happened in the last quarter. In the annual report, essentially what it's going to look like is um, somewhat like the annual compliance report that you get from the CCO, but instead it'll be an assessment of the valuation process and how it did throughout the year. Um, there are certain specific requirements in there about how did, you know, what kind of testing did you do and how did, how did that work? What kind of resources were devoted to it? So there are some specifics that'll be part of that annual report. 
And then the final piece that I mentioned, prompt reporting, um, that is something that has to go to the board if there is a material event that happens that needs sort of immediate attention by the board. Um, there's a bunch of different um, things to define under that rule that I think people are going to have to get um, get familiar with. Uh, what What is material? Some of them have to do with uh, material NAV error. Some of them have to do with significant deficiencies in material weaknesses in the process. So um, there will be prompt reporting uh, within five days of certain events. So people are going to have to take a close look at that and, and, and bring that into their policies to figure out how to make sure that reporting gets done to the board. Dave, well, I thought that was pretty interesting because, right, the SEC started out with this three-day reporting requirement, and it wasn't just material. It was could have been material, right? So you're looking across different funds. You're trying to figure out whether or not it could have been material. So I, I liked what they did by extending that to five days, and we saw a lot of commenters ask for, um, you know, at least five days or more, or, you know, there's also the 20-day concept that's built into the rule, too. So some interesting things around the prompt reporting. Switching gears here, let's now focus on the auditing and accounting standards. So with the rescission of the old ASRs, 113 and 118, the biggest question is whether or not we will continue as, as a practice or as, as a group to value 100% of the securities. And... Now that the, with the rescission of those ASRs, the auditing standards goes to the PCAOB and the PCAOB, of course, lets you sample. Now, what we're hearing from a number of our boards is that they will likely ask for 100% still. And to be honest with you, we pull all the prices from all of the pricing vendors. So what's nice about that is for the most part, we are already getting 100% of the values of, of the vast majority of mutual funds. And what's nice is the fact that we can really see where certain securities, especially when you think about those harder to value level two securities, we can see where pricing services uh, coalesce in, in where they where there's divergence. So I actually think the way that we value now and the information that we get is a powerful tool to help ensure that you know the advisor and the board when they're looking at pricing services that what they're getting is relevant and reliable so i don't see that as being a big change in practice to me it's almost the sec's kind of cleaning up the auditing literature and seeding it to the pcaob where it where it really belongs anyways so i don't i don't see that i don't see that as a big change anything you're hearing from boards over the rescission of those asrs I'm hearing the same thing that you are, right? I mean, ultimately, for the board, I think it comes down to a cost-benefit around sample versus 100%. And I think you just laid out a lot of the um, benefits of sticking with 100%. So I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if practice kind of continues to be there despite the change um, in this release. Um, Matt, what else is cooking in, in, in your world about this stuff? I mean, one of the things that I know you and I have talked about previously that's uh, in the release is, is the guidance around odd lot issues. Um, anything, initial reactions to that uh, as, as you read that guidance in the release? Yeah, you know, I, I think the odd lot in 
guidance is interesting. It'll be interesting to to see how um, it works in practice. I would say the one thing that I kind of focus on when you're thinking about odd lots is can how can you transact, right? And that's when I, if you want to talk about valuation and how to stay out of trouble, what is your actual exit price? And if you're a manager and you, you're the portfolio manager of two funds and you always exit a certain way, right? it may not be a pure unit of account because you have two different holdings, but essentially you're always transacting in a matter that, that your unit of account kind of transcends the single fund. Um, so if you can exit at that price and you can prove that in that asset class you can exit at that price, my personal view, not a firm view, my personal view is that, well, that's the exit price under GAAP. So I don't, I don't see an issue with that. Um, but I'm, I'm interested in hearing what others in the industry think. In conclusion, one of the things to remember is that there is this 18-month compliance period, but it's still a big lift and there's still a lot to do. So these 18 months are going to move fast. So, you know, if you have questions, feel free to reach out to myself or to Dave, more than willing to, to help our listeners in any way possible. Dave, your insights have been incredibly helpful today. So thank you for joining us. For all of our listeners, we hope you tune in to part two of this conversation where we'll talk a little bit about the new valuation rule and how it impacts advisors. Thank you for listening to KPMG's Investment Management Perspectives podcast. For more information, go to listen.kpmg.us slash imperspectives. And be sure to subscribe to the series to be notified of new episodes.